Hello and welcome to this, the 34th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And this second series is brought to you thanks to the very generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now it is because of that support that each week we bring you these podcasts and conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised we won't ever charge for the podcast but we are looking for you to go and put your money into Irish theatre. Put your money where your mouth is and support Irish theatre the way we like to. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote, and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And the simplest way for you to go and do that is to go and buy yourself some tickets. Now, for this week, why don't we change it up a little bit and say maybe you can buy yourself some theatre tickets. That'd be a great idea. Also, maybe you might go and look at some cinema tickets. There's a whole heap of Irish cinema kicking off at the moment. Obviously, most notably, that being Dublin Old School from Emma Kirwan and Ian Anderson. Um, And it is a big, special, important weekend for them. Irish movies really do live and die on their opening weekend. I know it's hot out there, guys. But this is your chance to support Irish film and Irish theatre in a way. If you think this show came from the show in a bag process where Fight Night came from all those years ago, these guys have uh, kind of taken over our mantle as the poster boys of uh, show in a bag and really taken it to a whole new level. They've brought that show to the National in London. They've now got it on the silver screen in something like 37 different cinemas around the country. So wherever you are, there is a, sh- a screening of Dublin Old School near you. Do please get out this weekend and support the lab. It would be massively, massively valuable for them uh, in helping getting the word out about the movie and getting the movie to as wide an audience as possible. And I, I just, I'll, I'll go straight out and say it: I saw a special screening of it, an IFTA screening of it last night. Some of the performances in there are just off the chart. What Ian Anderson is doing in that movie is just spectacular. I'm so delighted for him, delighted for the whole gang. It's great to see what Emmett has done with this show, taking it from the initial seed in his head as he pitched it for Show in a Bag all those years ago to now being arguably the biggest Irish movie of the year. It's it's a phenomenal achievement. Get out there and support the troops. Of course, this way you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast in person over a coffee or a pint by sharing the link as a Facebook post or retweeting the link on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. Of course they're all available to stream or for direct download at riseproductions.ie Go back and listen to our other episodes both in this second series and indeed the original series from a few years back. Leave us a review on iTunes if you have a minute. That'd be a huge help for us. Simply click to rate us maybe on their five star rating system and as ever you can follow us on Facebook we are facebook.com forward slash riseproductionsireland or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And again, as ever, it's been another busy week here at Rise Towers. We are in full pre-production mode for the last roll of the dice of The Good Father. Um, really looking forward to that run of a week in Smock Alley. I think it's going to be nice to get another crack at it. We're going to have to do a little bit of reblocking and stuff because Smock main space plays on three sides. 
so I'm looking forward to kind of getting back in and just tightening up those nuts and bolts and looking at how we can amend our storytelling uh, and blocking and stage pictures and stuff for that uh, additional angles um, and looking forward to getting back in the room with Dan and Marie it's been a couple of weeks so I'm really looking forward to getting in and getting my hands back on this play it's going to be your last chance to come and see this show we've been on the road with it since last October uh, by the time we finish this week in Smock it'll be close to I think 75 performances or something like that all around the country 25 different venues um, it's been a big monster two part tour um, you know with two separate casts and I'd really love you to come out and see the show um, it's important for us that we get the audience out and I think um, you know it's it's a piece that I'm really proud of uh, it's a show I'm delighted to be involved in as you all know I've been a fan of the show for over 15 years now and finally get my hands on it has been one of the happiest uh, happiest experiences in my career I have to say uh, if you've been promising me for a long time you're going to come and see it this is your last roll of the dice you've got a full week we're right smack bang in the middle of the city centre no excuses at this stage come out and see The Good Father when we're there uh, July 10th to July 16th do please come and support and so speaking of all things good father, I jumped in my car and headed west this week and decided I would have a sit down with the man I've been a fan of for so long, the writer of The Good Father, Christian O'Reilly, um, who's just a phenomenal writer, just, you know, so talented. It, it still blows my mind that The Good Father was his first full-length play, which is just ludicrous. Um, and we had a phenomenal chat, really great to sit down with him in his beautiful home right on the beach uh, on the Atlantic Coast. And I, I know I live right on the beach here on the East Coast, but Jesus, man, he is right on the beach. It's beautiful. He's a great guy, someone I have so much time for. Let's get straight into it. Here he is, the brilliant Christian O'Reilly. The wonderful Christian O'Reilly joining me on the podcast from a very sunny Galway. This is a very happy day for me. How the hell are you, sir? I'm very well. I'm very well enjoying the weather. Stunned by this good weather. We're actually having a summer in Galway. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let us start, as we do every week, and go back to the very beginning. Um, when did the initial spark of an interest in theatre happen for you? Well, of an interest in theatre, um, I suppose... Well, let me tell... Can I tell you about kind of an interest in writing generally? Absolutely. Because it kind of started with that. Um, until I was 17, I wanted to be a professional soccer player. Now, I was born in London, brought up there till I was eight. Then we moved to Listowel in County Kerry. My parents had separated. My dad had left. And so my mum uh, brought myself, my brother and my sister over to Listowel, County Kerry, which was a real kind of huge culture shock for me unsurprising yeah I mean it was like I like I was playing soccer on, on, on you know in the schoolyard thinking just dreaming of, of you know being the star suddenly we were thrust into North Kerry Gaelic football obsessed hating of soccer I was forced to play Gaelic when I played I used to dribble the ball I used to hate <laughs> it the teachers hated me but it was sometimes effective um, and so like that that was all kind of nuts um, and a real real adjustment and I suppose during that time uh, I I played soccer it, like kind of in tennis courts in in the square in the stall against church gates, but it was kind of an underground sport at, at particularly at the time, and the the prospects of becoming a soccer player increasingly dimmed. Uh, and in addition to which, at a certain point, I realised that you know uh, I wasn't going to be remotely good enough. Um, but but also kind of simultaneously, my my dad and I were writing letters to each other in the in the in the days when people wrote letters, as opposed to emails and Facebook and so forth. And he had been in business for conventional business for years. He'd been in advertising and he'd, he'd run his own business. It had gone pear shaped, and he had started to pursue his own lifelong dream of becoming a writer. Wow, a thriller writer, yeah. And um, 
while he was in the midst of pursuing that, uh, he told me in one of his letters that I wrote well, and it was like a light went off, and it kind of coincided with the realization that soccer wasn't going to become a career for me. And I started to think about becoming a writer. Um, I think influenced by his, you know, his words, uh, and also because I, I did enjoy writing letters, and and uh, and so I started thinking like that. And I went to college. Um, I had no notion of going to college for years. And, but my mother wanted me to go, and um, my friend Joe Stack, who now does uh, sport on RTE, yeah. was a neighbour. And uh, Joe, as we were crossing the bridge on our bikes one day going home, we were talking about all this, and Joe said that he was going to study communications because it was kind of media thing. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I think I'll apply for that too, just as it was as fickle as that. Um, and in the course of doing communications in our second year, we did a subject called media writing. And that involved, among other things, such as writing press releases, writing short fiction, okay. short stories. And for the first time, I wrote a short story. Um, I probably was about 19. Um, and I completely fell in love with making stuff up. Uh, I just, I should say, in addition to... to um, the whole writing thing. I'd been writing match reports uh, for my local soccer club and sending them to the Kerryman. Okay. Yeah. And then I, one time I offended one of our players by accident. Because this player called Alan Rot Grimes. Rot was his nickname. And I'd referred to a goal he'd scored or whatever, but the Kerryman got it wrong and called him Alan Rat Grimes. And he was <laughs> furious. Yikes. So that kind of, that kind of curtailed my um, journalism career. But so in second year, we did the subject, media writing, wrote short fiction, and just kind of really fell in love with short fiction, short uh, scripts and that kind of thing. And I got the notion that I was going to be, like my dad, I was going to try and become a uh, professional writer because he had, at this stage, published his first novel, a book called Games of the Hangman, which had made it to, um, I think it was number eight on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. Uh, so he had gone from, you know, uh, almost losing his house in yeah. his cottage in West Waterford to writing this kind of international bestseller, um, and w which was fantastic. And so I... Um, I kind of f figured that a career as a writer was a credible thing, not only because of him, but also because if you grow up in Listowel, <laughs> you know, it's in the water like John B., Brian McMahon. And that makes a difference as well because you, you, there's a real sense of support mm -hmm. and that this isn't a crazy thing to do. In fact, this is kind of what you probably should do if you live in Listowel. So those forces worked away unconsciously on me, on me, I think, and got me thinking about writing as a thing, an acceptable thing to do. To turn it into a living was another matter and um, sort of subsequent to college I wrote short stories lots of short stories I attempted a couple of novels I got a I got one novel um, sort of badly rejected which not my confidence for a time um, I, I, I remember I phoned up the publisher after they rejected it to sort of say why and it was kind of a mistake because they were kind of busy tense frustrated and they kind of had a real rant about it okay. and kind of said look just don't think about it working as a writer it's just not going to happen and it really kind of knocked me back because I've been like this kind of bouncing goofy you know I don't know what and, and it, it really knocked my kind of um, that kind of innocence was kind of shattered for yeah. quite a while in fact uh, and in fact confidence is one of those things that's always been a struggle to find confidence and to feel that uh, you know this kind of tension between self-belief and self-delusion am I fooling myself or actually is there something is there some talent here and it's a question you can't answer until in a way you've delivered something I suppose but I tried then at a certain point I was trying novels and short stories and going nowhere and then uh, someone suggested at one point that I tried screenplays uh, 
Um, and I tried screenwriting and they, they suggested it because they knew I loved to write dialogue. Okay. And in a way it was a, a, a kind suggestion, but not, um, well, if you, cause if you love writing dialogue, it's not, film isn't necessarily that medium. In fact, it's more, it is more theater, yeah. but I wrote a couple of screenplays and each time I wrote a screenplay, I thought not only will this be produced and, and star all the stars, it will be Oscar nominated, it will be mass- massively successful. All over. And this is completely what I expected would happen. I didn't expect that you could write a screenplay, that it not be produced. <laughs> and it could you know, the drawer. Yeah, because I didn't know that was the world, and I quickly discovered that. And I was quite demoralized um, by that. And uh, I was kind of wondering where I was going. And this was all during my 20s, uh, this kind of wilderness. Uh, and But then um, I remember I was down in Stowell, for a weekend and I went to a local amateur production of John B. Keane's play Sive and because um, you had asked me about this is my long-winded answer your no, question okay. about theatre and I just remember um, I loved the play I loved the production um, I loved the audience reaction and the connection between the actors and the audience and I loved the possibility of putting something on um, and it being done and it, it your words being spoken by actors and finding an audience and, and it, it, it sort of it, it got me thinking about theatre and um, I suppose by probably by that t- yeah by that time I was writing professionally but not being produced, and I just decided to write a play. And the first thing I, t- I attempted to do was a- an adapt adapt a screenplay I'd written. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of something like what was it? Something like Granny Mag. It was like it was really it was a really bad screenplay, <laughs> and it became a really really bad play. But but it, it became a really really bad play that had. Um, some probably some good dialogue, okay, um, and probably some evidence that I could write. And I remember I sent it into uh, Druid and uh, um, to Charlie McBride, who was the new writing manager there. And Charlie was very kind about it, and he he didn't say this is a pile of poo, which it was. He he kind of said there's something here, okay, and you know maybe um, this is something to. He encouraged me, in other words. And then I wrote another play, uh, and I, I wrote it. It was the first play I wrote as a play as opposed to an adapted sure. screenplay and it was um, a play called It Just Came Out and it was kind of a comedy about comedy about racism about a middle class couple who are <laughs> kind of more funny than nothing more funny than racism I know <laughs> I, it, um, and um, but it, it kind of I wrote it as a one a one act play it's, actually it's, it's kind of a comedy about a marriage that that, that addresses racism in a way um, and um, and I sent it into Druid and uh, again into Charlie, and he, he it's called It Just Came Out, and Charlie read it, and he really liked it, and they decided to do it, um, this is back in 2001, as a Druid debut. Okay. Yeah, and um, so suddenly I was going to get something, you know, um, read before an audience, and I remember um, with a Druid debut, they rehearse it for a couple of days, or you know, and then they do a kind of rehearsed reading of it, and I remember the actors coming in and reading it, and just the kind of, the sense of how flattering it was that actors would take your work and kind of make it their own. And I remember they were doing this stuff on, they were kind of doing this character work and they were kind of writing it on these pieces of paper and putting it on the, sticking it up or on the walls. And the sense that they take ownership of your characters and, and they enhance and develop your characters. Um, and that the stakes are so high for them but in, term, in respect of that because they're the ones going up on stage and performing. And, and it was amazing to witness that and incredibly flattering to see that occur and and then when they did the um, the reading, and I sat there with an o- in the audience, and um, 
I just remember the, just the response, people laughing, enjoying it. And it was, just, it was just incredible to feel that this was possible. And it really kind of made me fall for theatre. And also feel that, in a way, the advice had been given by a friend, you know, if you like writing dialogue, write film. I was now finding that write 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 plays try to write plays um and so that and I'm, that kind of and at the time i was thinking about another idea and at the time it was called the happy new year and nice. um yeah <laughs> i have a sense where this might be going yeah exactly i think you probably do know where this is going <laughs> and um it, it, it was an idea about a couple who, who who meet from very different sides of the tracks and who meet at a new year's eve party and uh you know get together and a month later she's pregnant and uh, i remember i met I met um, Gary Hines because she said, okay, we enjoyed it. It just came out. It went really well for us. Have you got anything else in mind? And, we, and uh, I said, I've got this idea. I haven't figured out how to write it yet, but I, I told her about it. She said, well, you send it in when it's kind of ready. Um, and so then it, the title quickly became The Good Father. And um, I can tell you a bit about how it went on. If, you, if that's, if you're, if that's, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's, let's get I'm really in. ranting. No, yeah. this is fine. Let's, <laughs> let's get straight into it, right? Yeah. Because I think as it'll come as no surprise to any people listening to this Goodfather's one of my favourite plays of the last 20 years well thank you um, I saw the original production and fell madly in love with it and swore to myself in the project theatre I said I'm getting my hands on that yeah. at some point yeah. initially I was I was convinced I was going to uh, play it and then about kind of five or six years I went no do you know what I want to direct this when I finally do yeah, it yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about The Goodfather then and how it came into existence sure well actually I should talk about um, well where like where it kind of came from, I just want to talk about a bit about that as well, and then I talk about how it, how it kind of happened as a play. Um, there's kind of a few. I find with play, for me with plays, like a few, it's like a few different ideas kind of come together. It's not just one idea, and then something can kind of happen there. A spark that kind of makes it go, I suppose. And um, uh, I have been playing soccer in Dublin for years. I continue to play soccer. Like I've, I'm still playing soccer. I played an over 35s game last night. Like I'll play soccer until I just collapse um but i played uh with a few teams in in dublin so i kind of even though i was going to college in dublin i kind of knew a kind of a more working class world through amateur soccer in dublin yeah and i knew characters guys who spoke like tim who were like the character of tim and the good father so there was so that was kind of something right there in terms of, of of a character i wanted to write about um and I wanted to write about, I, I, I find that the theme of fatherhood is something that I write about. I, and it, 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 I know it relates very obviously to the fact that my own dad had left. Okay. And so Tim is a character whose dad wasn't around. And, and as a consequence has this idea about, about being a father and about uh, being a good father and, and treating it as a kind of vocation. And I was interested then in the idea of, of a guy who has this real burning passion to be a father for all these reasons and thinks he can't be. For, for, for reasons that are expa explained in the play to do with infertility and so forth um, and then it, then the idea of writing about someone from that world who who falls for a girl from a very different world and I'd, I'd kind of known girls a women like Jane in the play um, sort of sarcastic quick-witted um, but in a way afraid to show their feelings or afraid to show their vulnerability and sometimes hard to like and and uh, I'd known a number of women like that and, and I found them really kind of compelling and interesting. So, so those were the kind of forces that led to the writing of the play. Um, and, but the play itself, just to kind of reconnect to where I was, when, it, when I sent it into Druid, it wasn't nearly complete. The first half of it was in good shape and in a way that, that, that monologue that Tim's give, Tim gives 
in the plays remained kind of unchanged throughout the process. But the second half of the play was a complete mess. Like it was just like, I think I had him wallowing in self-pity and alcohol for like 25 minutes and it was rubbish. <laughs> and I remember we did a reading of it and after the reading, Gary, we sat in Gary's, Gary Hines' car and she said, you know, the play needs some work. And, you know, and she wasn't that specific about the work needed at the time. And there was about six weeks to go before rehearsal. And she gave me some notes and I did another, another draft of the play. And I remember the first day of... Um, uh, the first day of rehearsal, uh, we read the play. The, the company was there. All the, the Druid staff members were there. And everyone clapped. And it was just like, this is great. And I thought, great, I'll go to the pub now. And, you know, and see you in four weeks. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought and planned. And then she said, could you come in tomorrow? And I thought, yeah, okay. And I came in tomorrow and it was like, it was, you know, this kind of suddenly empty room. All, all the people who clapped weren't there. There was Aidan Kelly, Derva Crotty, Tim Smith, the production manager, and Gary Hines. I think Sarah Lynch, the assistant stage manager, was there, or she was certainly in and out, and um, she's now now at the Abbey, of course. And uh, I remember Gary's. She, I remember she was holding a pen, and I remember she starts kind of reading the play from the top, and then she's like, she throws the pen, and she's like, I don't know what this play is. But what's this play about? Like, and she looks around, looks at me, looks at the actors, and I think this is they're all going to crack up laughing and then they'll say, you can go now. And, but no, 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 no. And so began a process, the process of interrogating the play um, and kind of tearing it apart, which is necessary, but I didn't know that. <laughs> know that. And, um, and, and it was really terrifying. Yeah. Because uh, I remember thinking like, you know, I talk about soccer and I remember thinking like, I'm here. I am. This is re, this is like re, the Real Madrid. This is a Champions League here. Yeah. You know, this is like Gary Hines is Zidane. You know, you've got Aiden. You've got Ronaldo. You've got like <laughs> Benzema. You know, and I and, and I'm like a, a, an amateur footballer who somehow wandered into this setup and has been asked to perform. So I was. I felt really out of my depth and intimidated and terrified. And um, but the process of interrogating the play was absolutely necessary because it just the parts of it were and the second half was and I was a total mess. And so I would go home at night, rewrite, come in the next day, the pages would be read by Aidan and Dervla and, and kind of read and annihilated. I, and then they might improvise something, I'd, try, I'd re rewrite. And I kept getting it, like I kept making it bags of it. And it but, you know, but it kept, that process continued. So it was kind of like a form of hell. Or like, I, I prefer to think of it more kindly as a crucible. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember Gary at one point kind of said to me, you know, stay in charge of it don't okay it's tough but stay in charge of it and i could see quite clearly that all they were trying to do was help me make the play better by challenging what didn't work and i i kind of gradually responded to that and certain things improved and certain things didn't improve and um but by the time we got to the the first preview the play was in much much stronger shape i mean yeah. much stronger shape and i remember we had the first preview and um, we got a standing ovation and, I, and we were in Freeney's pub afterwards and Gary and I were having a pint together and Aidan and Derville were at another table having a pint together. And I remember Gary saying, what do you think? And I said, what's to think? We got a standing ovation. Obviously, it's great. And she says, yeah, we got a standing ovation thanks to those two over there pointing at Aidan and Derville because of their fireworks acting. They were, they were phenomenal. They were yeah. amazing. And, um, and she said, but the, the play, they're kind of carrying the play and the ending of it in particular. And um, she said, what do you think about the ending? And I said, I could kind of see it wasn't working. I just didn't want to admit it. And Gary, like, who's really 
this is what I really was was most impressed about Gary and Aidan and Dervla. They were fearless in their determination to get the best out of me in the play, even though they needed a play that was finished. And even though it kept changing, they yeah. just wouldn't compromise on the, the integrity of the play. I would have compromised. <laughs> I was like, you know, I was like, ah, it's, but they just kept pushing and pushing it. Um, and I really admired that. And she said, the ending doesn't work. And I kind of said, I think I know what's wrong with it. I think it's a structural thing. I think I've got it all happening in one scene. It needs to be two scenes. And she said, that could work. Go home, rewrite it. Come, come in tomorrow at 9 a.m. I'll read the pages. The actors are in at 11. If it works, we'll pitch it to them at 11. If it doesn't work, we'll never mention this again. Wow. So I worked till 3 in the morning that night. I re- re- redid the ending. Um, and I brought in the next day. She read it. She said, that's fine. That's it. That works. And then the actors, to their credit, even though they had new stuff to learn, said, yeah, that's it. Finally, it works. And um, that night, again, it got a standing ovation. But at least the play felt it was strong. And I think the fact that the play, that was 2002. Mm. You're do, you know, you've been, you've been doing the play. Um, you've been touring it this year, touring it last year. And I, I have to say, I love your production. Thank you very much. beautiful production. <laughs> and go see it in Smock Alley if anyone's listening. But I, no, <laughs> I'm not just from. saying, I really love your production. It's beautiful. And I also think... The fact that the play stands up all these years later and has continued to have a life and it's been produced in America but um, and it's had a number of Irish productions um, since the Druid production, it, the fact that it stands up as a play um, is, is thanks to that rehearsal process and thanks to the pressure put on the play by Gary Hines, Aidan Kelly, Derv Lacrotti to force me to kind of perform at that level yeah. to perform at Champions League level and to, and to turn it into a really good play and, and kind of not to hide and not to take the easy way out and not to be lazy and to really kind of confront what it could be emotionally to really follow the um, emotional journey of those two characters and, and I'm, really, I'm really indebted to them for that because they, they you know yeah, what I find fascinating about that is because this was your first full length play yeah right? it was yeah so to have Tony Award winner Gary Hines yeah. uh, in the room and obviously Aidan Darvla two of our very finest at the very peak of their powers yeah. but for Gary's note to you to be you know staying in charge of yeah. this like to, yeah. it wasn't a question of trying to swamp your artistic vision or your voice it was about no. getting the best out of you I find that fascinating because yeah. I think the presumption might be yeah. that people go oh well we'll fix it we'll mould it into what we want yeah but it wasn't about that clear. No, it was always asking questions. Yeah. Does this work? Does this feel em- emotionally true? Um, does this feel contrived? Um, do we believe this? Does it j- usually it was, do, do, is it believable? Um, and that's, when it's a question to you as the writer, it forces you to, ask, to answer that and ask yourself and answer that question yourself. Um, I have had the experience in writing film and TV stuff where they don't really ask that particular question. There, it, it's much more quite a question of it needs to be this, change it to this. I remember writing an episode of Casualty yeah. um, when I did the BBC Writers Academy in 2011 and I was writing an episode, my first episode of Casualty and my um, script editor, David Davis, was going through the notes and the notes were a combination of um, his own notes, the script editor, producer notes, uh, medical consultant notes, which might sure. be the nursing consultant, the... Um, paramedic consultant the the doctor and so forth like loads of sets of notes and he was going through the notes and we came to one particular note and 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 i said i don't agree with that note and he said okay that's fine just so you know that's an exact note 
I said, what's an exact note? It's the executive producer note. I said, okay, I still don't agree with it. He said, okay, but it's an exact note, so they'll say you haven't done that note in the next draft. They'll go, oh, Christian hasn't done that note. How interesting. Okay, we'll replace him. And he said, that will be the conversation. It'll be no longer than that. They don't have time to talk any longer than that. And that will be it. Not only will you not get back onto that episode, but you will not write for that show ever again. So I said, could you go through these notes and tell me which ones are the exact notes, please? <laughs> because it's not your show. Wow. It's not your gig. Like in, what I love about theatre contracts, as opposed to film and television contracts, is a theatre contract, a play is, is licensed. There's nowhere in a theatre contract that entertains the idea that someone can rewrite your script. Yeah. In a film and TV contract, it's standard that you can be, after one or two drafts, they can bring in another writer. You can fight it all you want. Unless you're Aaron Sorkin or yeah. someone of that, it's just, you know, you're, you're vulnerable to that. So, you, you, so you're always... Um, and I always feel that film and television, unlike theatre, can kind of infantilise you as a writer because they're saying, you don't know best, but we do. Whereas theatre kind of says, OK, it might hurt, but be a grown-up. Your play isn't working. It's your play. Take responsibility for it. Make it work. You know, write, work all hours that are there, but don't give up on the play. Whereas in film and TV, ah, oh, you're sacked. Good luck, and and this is better. And so it, it you know, I learned that the hard way, and, it, and it, it's a very painful thing to learn. It's kind of fascinating. I think I'm pretty sure it's Rory Keenan, the actor who talks to me about a play that he had been writing and working with, kind of a literary department somewhere. Yeah. And he likened the process to taking a sledgehammer to a wall, basically. <laughs> And you batter the shite out of it. Yeah, and you yeah. knock a lot of the wall down. Yeah. But what's left standing after that difficult process yeah. is is the real core of it. Yeah. It's where the real strength is. And then you can replaster and patch it all back up again and build the wall back up again. But yeah. it's, it's those kind of... It's only by taking the sledgehammer to it that you reveal those pillars within the piece. I think Does that's that make a, sense? Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. I, I mean, I think of it as a crucible that burns off all the, all the, all the fat and yeah. leaves the bones and, and leaves something... But I think the sledgehammer is a very good image because you do you do take it apart and you're like you're scared or I found I was I was scared because you're thinking well what'll be left yeah and you and 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 you kind of have to put your fear aside and trust actually that's really what it's about it's about trusting that process um, and trusting that what comes out of it you know and it, it's kind of bringing to a place bringing yourself to a place in yourself whereby you can write more truthfully than maybe you have been um, and. I think then you can you've got something that's got some uh, strength to it and some robustness to it, yeah. you know. Um, and it's just, you know, in a way, ideally you do it independently, yeah. you know. And I'd love to think that I that I, and maybe on sometimes sometimes I have, but but other times, you know, I've 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 needed that process of that kind of exposure, that kind of um, con- that kind of challenge from people of that caliber um, to 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 better my work, you know. You talk about it standing the test of time, and I was staggered when I came back to it a couple of years ago to go right. I want to ramp up and I want to go move towards doing a production of this if I can get the rights. I was amazed by how well it's done, just because the le- the amount of change. So it's, it was written at the start of this century, we could say. Now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the amount of change, the fact that it was written in a world pre iPhone, pre Facebook, pre yeah. whatever else. Yeah. Um, that it feels like there should be an awful lot more anachronistic things in there. Yeah. And, the, like we've changed one word, and that we've changed, we changed Walkman to headphones. Yeah, just because Walkman at this stage it jangles it, dates it, it, it yeah, does. Yeah. But other than that, it really doesn't. I, I presume that wasn't a conscious thing at the time, or or was it? No, no, it wasn't. It, um, I just wrote the play. I wasn't yeah. thinking about whether it would be have any would it, whether it would endure at all. Like I don't think you can ever know whether 
people will want to do your work beyond an initial production yeah. even if they want to do it for an initial production that, that in itself is <laughs> is fabulous and, and sometimes surprising yeah. um, but no and I think like I think it's it's about two believable people who um, who go through something really kind of really really funny and entertaining but also really really sad and and in a way uh, painful um, and kind of ultimately it's a love story and I think that's what and people can identify with both both characters and they care about both characters um, and they root for both characters I think but I think that's what makes it kind of universal because they can identify um, and uh, then the other details like Walkman or headphones or whatever you know those things can be changed or maybe don't even matter so much yeah. you know but you yeah you just I think when you set out to write something you kind of hope it'll be good at all performed even once and then, you know, you dream of it being a success or you dream of it being kind of performed continually. But you just, you just never know. Like, yeah. you never know what's going to happen with your work, and you know. what's going to take. Yeah, yeah, because it's funny, I mean, in terms of that longevity, for us doing it last year, it was, it was what it was. But then coming back to it and, you know, playing that show, touring it around the country in the middle of the referendum yeah. uh, on the Eighth Amendment, given, you know, that it's dealing with a crisis pregnancy. Of course, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That suddenly it was... It's you kind of view it in that light then, okay? Uh, which was really interesting because it it didn't feel, it doesn't feel like a massively politicized play in that way. No, you know I mean? indeed, it's just, like you yeah. say, it's essentially just this story of the two of them. Yeah, um, yeah, and that that's that's the key to it. That's what opens it up. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose like I'm often quite conscious of what I write a play of of to what extent is it engaging socially or politically or or is it not. Um, and it's funny, I've attempted to write plays that directly do that. Um, and uh, I remember what this play I wrote for a commission, and um, it was for Public Art Commission in Galway. And it was for kind of a, a sort of disadvantaged kind of um, part of Galway as such. And um, the play was kind of a kind of rant to Galway City Council to do more as such. And my God, you've never read a worse play. It was so bad, like, and I didn't see initially how bad it was because you kind of don't, like, I don't anyway. Like, it takes me a while to um, see this. Um, now, it wasn't produced, thank God. Um, <laughs> and to the credit of you the, really are your own toughest critic. Well, it's it's more that when it's funny, like, it's when you're like when your eyes are opened to, then you kind of kind of go, you know, oh my God, like. I'm really embarrassed that I even sent this out. And the, the person who commissioned it had never commissioned a play before. Her own background is visual art. But okay. she still had the sense and the cop on. And I remember she read it when she was like 80% the way through it. And she rang me up. She says, we can't put on this play. And I was really kind of smug and kind of patronizing. And I said, well, you've only read 80% of it. He says, when you, I said, when you read at the end of it, you will see. And I was, I was thinking, like, she doesn't know about theatre. Like, she'll get it at the end. And she rang me at the end. And she said, we definitely can't put on this play. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, and I was quite defensive about it and it, it kind of thinking, you don't know what you're talking about. And then we did a reading of the play and the actors kind of tore it apart and the director tore it apart. And they were all right to tear it apart. And uh, actually, it's funny, and, you know, even after The Good Father, I remember after The Good Father, I, because The Good Father was a success. It got great responses and reviews and so forth. And Fintan O'Toole, in, in an interview, 
uh, rather in a, in a review called me a serious dramatist oh, wow. and I'm thinking oh my god I'm a serious dramatist I didn't know I was that but now I am that did you get a t-shirt printed up I should have done yeah because <laughs> I was thinking previously I was an amateur footballer but now I'm a professional footballer but it says serious dramatist um, you know I really kind of and then I thought well okay I'm, as a serious dramatist I will now write another serious play and of course it'll be put on my druid and I, I will be lauded over the world I win Tony Awards and I will be fantastic and I totally like this is what I was thinking and um and actually, as a slight aside there, one of the times I was struggling as a writer in Listola, I went to John B. Keane, and uh, he basically said to me, write from the heart. Mm. Um, and my sister, Kira, had, who's a visual artist, had said to me, put your passions into your work. Um, and The Good Father was a play that was very much about something I really cared about. Um, but with this play that I tried to write after The Good Father, um, with my head full of Fintan O'Toole's praise and all of this... Um, you know, I again, I wrote something that was trying to kind of say something that was very trying to be politically engaged, that was trying to be self-important. Okay. And I wrote a really rubbishy, terrible, pompous, crappy play. Um, and I remember as I was writing it, and I spent like a year writing it. I remember my, my agent saying to me, because she used to get annoyed that I would juggle lots of projects, but but I I think it's like a coping mechanism. Yeah. She said, you must, she says, darling, you must stop doing that and write, write this one play. And at the end of the year, right, I'd written this play, and then I'd also done this 24-hour theatre with Goway Youth Theatre, and I'd written this play in 12 hours, and this one-act play, and I sent the two of them to my agent at the same time, and I remember she said about the full-length play, she said, this just doesn't work, it's, you know, it's overwrought, it's this, it's that, and then she said, but this, this, this short play is really, really lovely, like, and she'd really, and I thought, oh my God, it's been a year write this terrible play, and I, I, I you know, and, and it was, it was a train wreck of a play, and I'd, it's because I'd responded to the wrong part of myself. I'd written it from the head. I'd written yeah. it from the ego. I'd written it from, you know, uh, and it just wasn't good. And I, it, it, that also kind of knocked my, that knocked my confidence a good bit. And Gary Hines, I remember telling tell, I met Gary about it. And um, I kind of was hoping and praying that she would fall in love with it. And uh, she just kind of said, it just isn't, it isn't good. And I remember someone else reading it and saying it was broken backed. I said, what do you mean? And she says, it's just, it's not fixable. And it wasn't, okay. just wasn't fixable. Uh, like this other one I mentioned that I, so it, 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 sometimes you just get it really, really wrong by, you know, I, I guess I feel The Good Father is a play that says more about, I guess about social class in a way, mm -hmm. um, or about maybe humanity. So it's, it's political in, in that sense, if you can yeah. call that political, then these other things that I try to write that were just, dreadful you know but it's okay like because you kind of you know you, you kind of you realize it and you get up again and you, you start again and maybe get it wrong again mm. but then you kind of on, on occasion I find that I write something that actually is a decent play yeah. like Sanctuary is a play I wrote for Blue Teapot Theatre Company and um, and I remember when 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 um, when I was commissioned to write that play uh, you know, I've done a few commissions for uh, kind of groups on the mar on the margins as such. I've done yeah. a couple of public art commissions like that, and um, and Sanctuary was a play that was commissioned by Blue Teapot, and Blue Teapot are a theatre company composed of actors with intellectual disabilities. And Petal Pilly, their artistic director, met me for coffee and said, "I want to commission a play that ex explores kind of obstacles faced by people in with intellectual disabilities to having relationships and sexual relationships and intimacy and the opportunity yeah. for that." 
And uh, I was Im- immediately both um, drawn to it because it's a world I knew nothing about and kind of terrified because I'd had the experience of doing commissioned work where I wrote, I, I'd written, I was too on the nose, too direct, uh, too up my own arse and had written really bad plays. Yeah. And, um, and also there's a responsibility to a community particularly in that instance where they're going to have about, you know, some money to commission you, that they can't commission 10 playwrights to write this play. Yeah. When that money is spent, if the play doesn't work, the, it doesn't work. And, and, and then they, you know, they don't get the play they need to, to, to explore a subject that's important to them and, and beyond. Um, and um, so I was very conflicted about accepting the commission and I was also busy, busily writing television stuff that year. And I remember I, I, I kind of, I turned it down at one point. I just don't have time because I was writing TV, lots of TV stuff. Um, I was writing for Casualty, Holby City. I was going to be writing Freestanders. And I remember, um, uh, but as soon as I said no, I immediately regretted it and thought, no, i got to write, I really want to write this. And uh, I remember uh, saying to my wife Alva when she came home from uh, a day's sub-teaching, I've turned it down, but it's killing me. I don't have time to do it, but I really want to. She says, if you really, really want to do it, you'll find time to do it. She says, do it. And I rang up Petal and I changed my mind. And she said, great, because we haven't found anyone else. So we want you to do it. And the way that kind of then kind of grew into a play uh, was just kind of talking to the actors um, with Petal and talking about the subject of the play, sex, relationships, obstacles they faced. And um, the play really came out of conversations with the actors and um, and kind of the, I suppose the emotion that they, and and, and the humour that they kind of demonstrated, yeah. and the kind of characters that they suggested, and um, ultimately that, that's kind of a com a comic love love story. Um, but again, it, it kind of came from character, a bit like the Good Father did. Yeah. It really kind of came from character. But I I do think it's kind of um a kind of a political play in a way. Well, it's tricky. You know, it's tricky subject matter. I mean, for you to approach yeah. it in terms of how you're writing it. Yeah. As in, it's it's tricky territory to navigate, I think. Yeah, it is. And I was terrified of, of, of that. But but it, it, it all kind of, it, it slowly kind of began to work. And again, you're worried about being condescending, being patronising, being on the nose. All of, the, all of these mistakes have made another work. But I got an idea, because the, the guy said it's really difficult for two, for two people to be alone together, two yeah. of us to be alone together. So I kind of thought, well, I'll write a play about that very thing, and but I write about a couple who who find a way to be alone together, and then I kind of thought, what about their ordinary lives? Well, in in, in the a care home, it's not really possible because there's there's staff around. In a training centre, it's probably quite difficult because there there's there's you know there's large groups and there's staff around, and then I got the idea of of a trip to the cinema where there might be, and I sort of said, well, how many care workers could there be? Would there be five for eighty of you? No, there might be one. I thought, well, if there's one that's really interesting, and could that one be sympathetic? And they said, well, yes, they could be sympathetic to, to this. So, it, it, so, so all of this came from what their answers and, and what they contributed to the idea of two people who escape from a trip to the cinema to go to a hotel room to be alone together for the first time, and what's going to happen. Mm. And then it became a play from that, and um, a play that was, was really well received and, um, and ultimately became a movie which was also well received. And so it, it was one of those things. And I think you always kind of count your blessings when something works out because it's almost like you're not in control of it. Mm. And that's why I think it's a process that's en- endlessly humbling um, as opposed to humiliating. <laughs> it's humbling because you just don't know whether something's going to come to you or not and whether if it does, it's going to be any good or not. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating to me. I mean, you have had a lot of successes. Um, 
and, and a lot of your work gets done in the states as well, uh, which I find which I find interesting because it seems that that's a bridge that is hard for some people to to make that leap a lot of the time. Well, I got I got really really lucky with um, getting work done in the states, and um, I tell you that story. That's a play about this play Chapati that yeah. I wrote, um, which is a two hander about two older people who um, sort of meet meet through the discovery of a dead cat. Um, he he's actually he he's a guy who's um, who's bereaved. Uh, he's he's a dog owner and he's he's bereaved his his partner of many years has passed away, and uh, he he really sees no meaning in life anymore. He's very lonely, and he decides to end his life. But before he does that, he wants to find a home for his dog. Right. And one day there's a knock on the door, and someone has knocked over a cat and and asks him to find who owns the cat because they're in a hurry. And in the course of looking for the owner of the cat, he meets this woman called Betty who owns 19 cats, and they uh, go on a journey to find the owner of the uh the owner of the, of the dead cat but they begin a friendship from that and it becomes kind of r- romantic so i've written this this play and um i've written it as an interweaving monologue and uh it had been kind of turned down everywhere in ireland and uh it just was one of those ones that was on the shelf actually originally i'd done it as a radio play and then i adapted it into a stage in a, into a stage play because i was curious to experiment with a different form and i kind of wanted i kind of wanted to tell the story again and um so what what kind of happened was it got turned down everywhere, and uh, I got the notion um, that John Mahoney, the act, the American actor John Mahoney, would be brilliant playing this character of Dan. That he had this he'd have this great combination of uh, kind of humanity and crankiness. Because yes. with this kind of material, you have to um, be careful of sentimentality. I was aware of that. Old people, dogs, pets, that kind of thing. Um, but I thought he got this great curmudgeonly quality. And of course, he was a regular visitor to Galway doing Galway International Arts Festival plays. And he was doing uh, a play in Galway in this particular year. And I remember texting Alva, all my good decisions come from Alva. Um, I remember texting Alva. Behind every great man, there's a surprised woman. Yeah, it? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and I texted Alva and said, I've got this notion to send the play to John Mahoney. What do you think? And she said, she'd be nothing to lose. Yeah. So I printed it off, I wrote a cover note, and I dropped it into him at the town hall. And I knew the staff there, I'd done a residence in the town hall. And I knew Joan and Marie um, and, and other people in there. And um, I was confident they'd get the play to him. Yeah. I wasn't confident he'd ever read it. Yeah. I also knew he'd seen The Good Father, and he'd seen the Druid production of The Good Father okay. years ago. And he'd enjoyed it. Uh, and he'd met Aidan and Dervla afterwards. And I, ha- I was, remember it was a big regret that I never met him at that time. So I, I was confident that I could refer to it in my cover letter, and I did. And um, I forgot about it then. About two months later, I got an email uh, on a Friday evening uh, from John Mahoney saying, I've read your play, I love it, I want to play this part, and I recommended it to Northlight Theatre of Chicago. And um, I was thrilled, as you can imagine. And I was, I was in the middle of, of, of writing TV shows, and I remember I, 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 was over, I then went over to London to write my episode of Holby City, or to, to get feedback on it. I remember being in, in the Holiday Inn because uh, they asked me to stay for a week to try and rewrite it. And I was, I was, I was about an inch from being sacked from Holby City when I got a call from BJ Jones about a week after John Mahoney's email. BJ Jones, artistic director of Northlight, saying, John Mahoney showed me your play. We've read it. We love it. We want to do it. And I was kind of staggered. Amazing. And um, I then went to Paul Fahey of the Galway International Arts Festival. And um, I, I printed off John Mahoney's email. And I put it in front of Paul, and Paul, Paul and, with a copy of the play. And, and Paul read the email. And he, that afternoon, he read the play. And so it quickly became um, a, a, a co-production. And it was done the following... No, it wasn't done the following year. It was done the year after that, in 2014. 
and um, initially done uh, for seven weeks in Chicago, wow. uh, where where it sold out. Now, not because of the play, and I'm not being modest, but John Mahoney is a total was a total. God rest him. He, he died this year, yeah. but he was such a star at that matinee idol over there, and um, and Penny Slusher, who played opposite him, was just wonderful. The two of them were just gorgeous in the play. And so it sold out for seven weeks in, in Chicago. I did two weeks in Galway where it sold out again in the town hall during the, the, um, the arts festival. And um, got f- fabulous, fabulous re- uh, um, reactions, particularly in Chicago. In, 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 in Ireland, a couple of the reviewers weren't that, reviewers weren't that fond of the, the attempted Irish accents. Oh, okay. um, I weren't that kind about them. I won't mention any names. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, but, 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 but. It, because of that production, it then got published by a DPS in America, Dramatist Play Service, and that has led to something like twenty productions since wow. then. Yeah, of the of that play, and um, the Good Father's also been done in the states, and um, hopefully I'll get other work done in the fullness of time. Though you never know. But it, but it, but you know, it's been great to have it as widely produced as that, and I hope it'll be continue to be produced over there. Will you talk to me a bit about the difference between? writing for stage and writing for screen. I mean, yeah. you know, you talk about the casualties of the hobbies of the world and how you talk about how it, it is a more visual medium. It's not necessarily as dialogue dependent. How do you find your approach differs between the two? Well, I think when I, um, I mean, I, I think probably the, 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 the first thing, as I said earlier, is you can't get sacked from a play. That I love. <laughs> um, but but I suppose one one sort of difference is um, yeah it's, it's certainly more more visual form um, film is and uh, and to an extent although a lesser extent so too is television uh, television is really a medium where dialogue um, it can be indulged put yeah. it that way um, so so you're trying to, to write in a different language as such um, now in saying that my my I still have a tendency towards dialogue heavy screenplays which which can be uh, a problem and it's something I, I always need to watch in my own work I think as well when when for me anyway when you when you write when you write a screenplay you're you're immediate you're one of the first tools you reach for is, is the kind of standard uh, three-act structure um, you know which which is eventually you know essentially beginning in middle and end but more technical than that yeah. or, or uh, you know it can also be broken down into five acts and I, I, I work with a five act, act structure so I immediately know what shape my story needs yeah and I also know that it that it's going to be about transformation of character in some shape or form, and I know it needs a central character and so forth. So it, there's a certain number of tools that you immediately reach for when you're writing a, a film script, I think. And I think that can differ in a way when you're writing a play because you, you've got to decide whether you're writing a naturalistic play or not for a start. Yeah. I, I, I often write naturalistic plays, I guess, um, and you then have to ask yourself what kind of form what kind of shape it might take and um, I, I think in theatre uh, you don't necessarily reach as automatically for the same tools mm. uh, although I guess in my case I, I would, would I, I like plays that tell stories not everybody does um, yeah but they're wrong so it's okay, <laughs> so it's okay. yeah yeah <laughs> I think as well like even kind of in, in kind of um, like like crew differences and this is this is almost embarrassingly crew differences to like when you write a film, you know you can have lots and lots of locations. Yeah. And sometimes when you write a, a, a play, you're thinking about well, well, like practically, would it would it be useful if it takes place in a single room? Like because that sort of theatre lends itself more to that. Whereas if yeah. we've got sixty five locations, 
is that problematic? Or if I've got a cast of, of, of 100, is that problematic? Yeah. Um, and yet some plays embrace that. And some, like The Good Father takes place in a, in a probably, I don't know how many different locations, but certainly a number of them. Most importantly, Port Marnock Beach. But we Most importantly, Port Marnock Beach, yeah. So in a way that, that, that you know, you find yourself, uh, y- you know, you've, I, I, you know, f- again, for me, I find that if I start writing something and the, ga- the characters want to be in a room together and there's just two of them and they're talking a lot and they don't want to stop talking, then it feels like a play. Yeah. You know, um, was it, but if I'm doing something that feels a bo- bit more visual, then I start, because often I don't know what my stories are going to be. Is this okay. a play? Is this a screenplay? Is this, is this, is this a telly idea? You know, like in a, in a screenplay... Like in terms of the difference between film and television, for instance, in a screenplay, in a film script, you're talking about transforming a character who has changed by the end. Whereas in a piece of television, you're talking about a character who at the end of the episode probably, probably hasn't changed. Mm. Because if they have changed, that's the end of your show. Yeah. Uh, you know, that applies to sitcom, it applies to soap. You know, those forms are reliant on characters not changing. And I think what I love about theatre and film um, is, is, I, is I love the idea of, of, of a character who has changed by the end. <laughs> So for me, for me, that's that is um, that's really what's quite seductive about those about those forms. And it's like for, I haven't succeeded as a television writer. I remember Lynn Parker saying to me after one of my plays, she said, "You should really be writing television." She said, "Why are you writing these plays? Like you should be writing television." <laughs> and I, I remember thinking, "Yeah, she's probably right." And I remember then feeling, like, um, when my when my first child, my son Colin, was born in two thousand and ten, I remember thinking, like, this this film and theatre lark like this is I need to grow up and start you know I need to start being responsible and and getting regular paid writing work because yeah. I'm now going to be a dad and you know you know all my hang ups about fatherhood they're all in my plays <laughs> and they're all particularly in The Good Father but I remember feeling this very very powerful kind of um, provider instinct yeah. and um, kind of turning my back on the things I wanted to write and thinking I'm now going to write for television and then I applied for the BBC Writers Academy to learn to write for Casually Holby City um, EastEnders doctors to to finally become a kind of mature responsible writer I remember thinking this is what I need to do and we went to London for three months so I could train Alva and Colin who was about two and a half we went over there um, and I remember meeting a bunch of agents because I was looking for representation um, my other agent had given me the bullet okay. and I was looking for an agent and I remember a number of the agents said to me um, we've no interest in theatre it's just television we just want television and um I remember thinking, yeah, yeah, that's kind of cool. But then I met this agency, and uh, there was two of them, and uh, Bethan and uh, Emily. And I remember Bethan said, well, you know, I'm more television. And Emily said, well, I'm kind of more theatre, and I really, you know, like your plays. And I remember kind of just, I decided to go with them as agents because I kind of wanted to kind of keep that that flicker alive. Yeah. But I still felt kind of guilty because I felt well, I shouldn't be doing that. I should just give up on that. But And I remember the, the way it works is you do three months training, and then you write an episode of each show. And uh, I wrote for Casually first. I got through that okay. And, you know, I, it was tough, but I got through it. Then I wrote for Holby City. Very, very nearly got sacked, but got through it. Um, I'd written for Doctors. That had gone fine um, at the start. And then I wrote for EastEnders. And I remember it was going well. And then I abruptly got sacked. And I remember it was on November the 15th, 2012. Because um, I remember the shock, the shock of it. And the kind of shame of it, because I've been telling all my friends, I'm right for standards, I'm right for standards, and um, I felt really, really humiliated when I was sacked, and there was no going back. Like that was that was that, um, and that that was the year that year I wrote Sanctuary, 
And I remember, um, and it was also the year that Chapati got noticed by John Mahoney. Um, and the following year, I wrote More Casualty. Um, and I remember I nearly got sacked and then survived. But during the full three months of the writing process, the threat of being sacked never lifted. Yeah. Even coming up to when it was shooting, I remember saying to my script editor, is it too late to be sacked now? And they said, no, it's never too late to be sacked. And it wasn't until it finished shooting that it was actually too late to be, I was too late to be sacked. But it was quite traumatic. Yeah. And, um, and I remember then after that, having got through it, I got onto my agent and I said, so am I going to get other episodes uh, of this? Um, even though I found it really painful to, to write for it because it was, I wasn't that good at it, really, I think. Um, and it was always this threat of getting sacked. I felt, again, I've got to provide for my son. I've got to be, you know, and... Uh, and I remember I was, I was then over in London and my agent didn't get an answer from the exec producer of, of Holby Casualty. She got, didn't, and then I was over in London at a, an agent's meeting with these executives going to be in attendance. And I was eating a cheese omelette <laughs> just across the road. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was too cheesy, I remember that. <laughs> too, too much cheese in it. And I got a phone call from my agent. She said, okay, you're about to meet the exec producer. Yeah, I just got an email from him. They're not going to use you again. Uh, and so just so you know that when you meet him. And I remember thinking, like, oh, I was just crushed. Yeah. And I remember I met him and I shook his hand and I couldn't say anything because you're not really meant to. But, um, and I remember being really scared, like, because I came home and I thinking, I've really failed. I failed at writing for these shows, like, I've, and I, in a way, then failed at being, for, at being a father. Okay. Because if I can't do that, like, I'm just some kind of, um, uh, but, but then I, what I, but then I, I found, to my surprise, the things that started to do well for me were, were things like Sanctuary had been really well received and was now going to become a movie. And this play, Chapati, that uh, John Mahoney loved, was, was going to be produced. Um, and I remember then, in respect to something like EastEnders, I remember... Um, am, I used, am I allowed to use bad language on this? Fucking fire away. <laughs> I remember... Um, I was in this pub, uh, uh, Monroe's, the, the, the local soccer club, and, um, and I met some, a couple of the lads who, who I played soccer with who knew I was writing for EastEnders. Because um, it's the most popular show. You tell anyone in the world EastEnders, course, they've yeah. heard of it. And the lads said to me, um, so how's EastEnders going? And I said, to be honest, I've been, I've been, I've been sacked. Uh, and it was interesting to be very upfront about it because I, I remember feeling shamed. Mm. And I remember feeling very, very conscious that because I felt ashamed, I had to talk about it because otherwise it was going to be quite corrosive. I remember yeah. that was a really strong instinct. So I would tell anyone who was interested how I'd been sacked. And I told the lads and their response was, I should tell you a pile of fucking shite anyway. <laughs> and of course it isn't. It's, it's a, but nevertheless, yeah. it, it, they said it's only depressing bollocks. And, you know, it was what I needed to hear because yeah. it was them saying, we still like you anyway. We don't think any, any the less of you. And it was such a release to, kn to know that. And, and in a way, you know, I tried my damnedest to, to write well for these shows. And they're shows that I really admire. And they're really great shows. And they're tough shows. And I admire people who can write for them. I mean, in awe, in awe of people who can write for them and can write for them regularly. Because um, I couldn't. And, um, but what was amazing to discover was that, I, that to write my own material things like Sanctuary and Chapati and whatever the hell, and The Good Father back in the day and other things I've, it, it, you know, it, it showed me that that could still work, that I could still make some kind of a living uh, from doing that kind of thing. And that sometimes 
um, it seems insane to trust your own instinct or it seems insane to do the thing you love because it seems reckless. But in fact, doing the thing you love is actually the most sensible thing you could do. And it was a real, it was a real lesson to me. And, and I've gone, f you know, I continue to do that. I continue to wonder whether it's a sensible thing to do. You know, we've got two kids now. I've got three-year-old daughter as well. Um, but, it, but it, 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 you know, it was a real lesson to me kind of as a, as a father as well, as a writer and as, and as a father to kind of feel like it's, it's actually okay uh, to do this thing that you love to do. You well, know. I, it, listen. If it's uh, if it's the advice from John B, then it's probably good yeah. advice to follow. And yeah. I think following your heart, yeah, is, exactly, is the yeah. way to go. Uh, I hope yeah. you continue to follow your heart <laughs> and write Thanks. many more great works. Thanks, thank you so Cheers. much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Millen. Appreciate it. So there you have it, the brilliant Christian O'Reilly. So wonderful to catch up with him. He's a guy who I've really enjoyed working with on this show. Just such a wonderful guy, so supportive. Um, and a guy I've just been a fan of for so long, so fingers crossed. Uh, we get to send him out with a bang with this final run of The Good Father. And who knows what further collaborations there may be further down the road. Fingers crossed uh, that Rise and Christian O'Reilly get to work together again very soon. So look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of theatrical goings-on around the country at the Abbey Theatre. They have Ulysses at the gate. They have the Snapper, which is doing crazy business for them, as far as I know. At the Gaiety Theatre, it's the Summer Spectacular of Riverdance. And at the board, gosh, it is This Is Elvis, and that's followed by Hairspray. At Theatre Upstairs, it's, well, That's What I Heard by Thomas Kane Byrne, TKB, starring the brilliant Kira Ivy, who we had on Cobra's Quest back for the Fringe last year. I shall be going to see that this very evening. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, at the New Theatre, they have Punt coming up. And at Smock Alley, Yes, it is your last chance to catch The Good Father. Did I mention we're going to Smock Alley with The Good Father? We're going to Smock Alley with The Good Father. July 10th to July 16th. Do not miss it. We'll have a matinee on the Saturday as well, if that suits people. Obviously, we're not going to play the Sunday. We're going to play from the Tuesday right the way through to the following Monday for a special performance on the Monday night. More about that in due course. Lots of exciting announcements on the way. At the Viking Theatre in Clontarf, there is The Remarkable Rocket and The Happy Prince, that double bill. And that'll be followed by Fred and Alice at Bewley's in the lunchtime slot they have Sharon at Project uh, Jesse Jones Tremble Tremble continues with the brilliant Alwyn Fuere and heading south to the Everyman in Cork they have Wet Paint a little bit across to Waterford they have that production of Blackbird coming up with Anthony Brophy and Maria Guyver and then the Clonmel Junction Arts Festival is about to kick off and they've got a great lineup of theatre comedy dance music everything Pat Kinnaman is there Blind Boy from Rubber Bandits is there and a whole host of others it's certainly going to be worth your while to go and check that out Clonmel Junction Arts Festival. Uh, heading west to the Town Hall in Galway, it's the final couple of performances of A Skull in Connemara. And then at the Lyric in Belfast, last chance to catch Frank Carson, Rebel Without a Pause from the brilliant Dan Gordon. And also they have We Like It Here. So that is us. That is episode 34 in the books. Well, man, this is powering on. We will, of course, be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime, this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. <laughs>